0: So as we've just heard this past week, parents sent their kids off to youth retreat. And if you're a parent sending your child for the very first time, you're anxious, worried, concerned about your child. How will Johnny and Jane do? Will they enjoy it? Will they make friends there? Will it rain all week? They eagerly await to hear how things are going. A text message, a phone call, some sort of news that tells them how things are going. And when they hear about good news, they rejoice in it. Today, we're going to look at Paul, not as a writer of great theological doctrines, or gifted preacher of the gospel, but as a loving and anxious parent. Someone concerned not about his physical child, but about his spiritual children, the believers in Thessalonica. As part of our sermon series, Teach Us to Pray, today we're going to be looking at how we ought to pray for one another. And an excellent example of this is Paul's passionate prayer that he offers to God for the Thessalonian believers. But before we do that, let's look at the context of that prayer. What was motivating Paul to pray for the Thessalonian church? Turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 17. And we'll be reading through chapter 3, verse 13, um, 13. It's in page 986 in your Blue Bibles, Blue Pew Bibles. But since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time, in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire To see you face to face. Because we wanted to come to you. I Paul again and again. But Satan hindered us. For what is our hope or joy. Or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus Christ that is coming. Is it not you? For you are our glory and our joy. Here we see Paul is worried about the health of the Thessalonian church. He's just finished a long road trip, his second missionary journey. Paul first travels to Philippi, where he establishes a church there in the household of Lydia. And then he's thrown into jail, and he then helps in the conversion of the jailkeeper and his household by, of all strange means, his, his midnight singing. From there, he travels to Thessalonica, the capital of Macedonia, and he preaches in the synagogue, as was his custom. Acts 17, verse 4, recounts this. It says Some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, that is, the Jews, as did a great many of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women. A new church is born. But other Jews are jealous and they form a mob and attack Paul and attack him in the house of Jason where he's staying. And Paul is forced to leave quickly and move on. He then goes to Berea where they are well received by some people. But those same people that he found in Thessalonica follow him there and stir up trouble again. From there, Paul travels to Athens, where he again preaches in the synagogue and also in the marketplace, debating with Greek philosophers. And finally, he ends up in a place we know well from our last sermon series, the city of Corinth. And it's here, in Corinth, that Paul looks back and worries about the kids he left behind. First of all, we're going to look at his desire to be with the Thessalonian believers. Paul says he feels torn away from the new believers because of his interrupted visit. And even though he's not with them, he is with them in his heart, in his thoughts and his prayers. When you step back and look at the book of Acts, look at Paul's missionary journeys... It seems like Paul is bebopping around Asia Minor, planting churches here and there, and everything is happening really quickly. What we don't see but seen in this passage is Paul's ministry to these churches. He is not a globe-trotting missionary, just planting church here and there and then moving on to greener pastures. Rather, we see Paul in a different light. He's a pastor. He's a shepherd. And this text reveals his heart. Someone who's vitally concerned about his people and their welfare. Paul loved the people in the churches he planted and desperately wants to be with them and guide them in their spiritual growth. Today it's easy to miss this vital fact about pastors with the rise of the internet and online video blogs. We elevate pastors by how they communicate to us online. But nothing replaces a pastor who carefully tends his flock, knows his flock, and suffers for his flock. A flock where he knows each of them by name, by their needs, by their joys and triumphs, and even by their sins. Real pastors have a love for people with all of their faults. They don't preach because they like to hear the praise offered to them for a well-done sermon. They preach to bring the word of God into people's hearts in order to sanctify them and to change their lives. Real pastors do not go into the pastorate because it gives them a sense of self fulfillment or job satisfaction. I preach because, oh, it makes me feel so good, so self fulfilled. No pastors serve because they feel the weighty call of God to encourage, exhort, support, and suffer for their churches. It's not an easy job. In fact, it's one of the most difficult jobs you'll ever find. Look at our own pastors. Look at BJ and Brad. They all have a deep love for you. And it isn't just for preparing next Sunday's sermon, it's spending countless hours communicating and talking with you. It's equipping and developing new leaders in this church, it's offering up prayers for each and every one of you. We often look at Paul as some sort of a super-Christian, someone who's able to leave conflicts in the church with a single bound and write letters to other churches as fast as a speeding bullet. But Paul is a pastor at heart. He cares for the churches he planted. And we see that in today's passage he wants to come back. The Thessalonians believers in the worst way. He wants to see their faces again, but he can't. He's proud of them and wants to give them something to help them to continue to grow, but he can't be there. He says, For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before the Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. He is like a father seeing his beloved daughter being given away in marriage. And he envisions the day when they will be presented before Christ at his second coming like a beautiful bride. This church is the crown of his boasting. These believers will be his joy and happiness in heaven. So Paul desperately wants to be with this church. He wants to see them again, but he wants more than that. He wants their spiritual good. Let's continue by reading uh, verses 1 through 8 in chapter 3. Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at, at Athens alone, and we sent Timothy, our beloved brother, and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ to establish and exhort you in your faith, that no one be moved by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we are destined for this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction, just as it has come to pass, and just as you know. For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith, For now we live if you are standing firm, standing fast in the Lord. Paul opens up here and says, when we could bear it no longer, he's actively concerned about their welfare. He's like that parent worrying, hoping that their child is handling the youth retreat well. He not only wants to be with them, But he desires their spiritual good. So, what does Paul do? He sends a representative. He sends his beloved co worker, Timothy, to Thessalonica to find out exactly how they're doing. What's he concerned about? He's concerned about how strong and established they've become. Are they growing in their faith? Are they handling persecution that he encountered there? Are they falling prey to the wiles of the devil? Again, you have to remember he was only with them for three weeks before he was forced to leave. But before he left them, he warned them that they also would undergo persecution and affliction. Verse 4 says, For you yourselves know that we are destined for this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction and it has come to pass, just as you know. He feared that Satan would come and tempt them. He was worried that Satan would whisper in their ears and craftily lead them away from true faith. It brings to mind what we've talked about today, the parable of the four soils in Luke 8. Was Paul thinking, did the gospel seed that I plant fall on rocky soil or among thorns or on the path where birds snatched it up? Will this church survive persecution and temptation? Are my labors in vain? So when Timothy returned, what did Paul hear? Good news, great news, wonderful news. Timothy reported that the Thessalonians were doing just fine, actually better than fine. Paul delights in hearing that they are still growing, still steadfast, still firm in the face, faith. He's comforted by that news. He says, for now we really live because you are standing firm in the face, firm in the Lord, verse 8. He's overjoyed because the Thessalonian church is alive in the spirit and thriving. So now we come to Paul's actual prayer for the Thessalonians in verses 9 and 13. And as we see from the preceding verses, Paul has this deep and heartfelt love for the church. And this drives him to pray for them. Paul's prayer here has four distinct parts. First, he gives thanks to God for what he has done, and then he petitions God to help them in three different areas, to strengthen their faith, to grow in love for one another, and to live pure and holy lives. And you can see this in your bulletin outline. Let's read this prayer, chapter 3, verses 9 through 13. as we do for you, so that he may may establish your hearts, blameless in holiness, before God the Father, at the coming of our Lord Jesus, with all the saints. Paul opens his prayer with thanksgiving. Above all things, he praises God, for what he has done. And I want you to notice, that this prayer is not directed to the, The thanks is not given to the Thessalonians. It's directed towards God. Paul knows the true source of the good news about the Thessalonians is God's protection and his provision over them. And this focus on God has two effects on the church. First of all, it encourages them. Despite Paul being absent they are still growing spiritually and they still remain faithful despite opposition. But at the same time, it humbles them. It points out that this faith, this firmness that they have is not of their own doing. The praise and thanksgiving belong entirely to God himself. Like Paul, we need a prayer life that re- regularly thanks God for everything that He gives us, especially for the people He gives us, both in the church and those outside of the church. Consider what would happen in our church if each of us worked to thank one another, to thank God for one another. How would that change our church? How would that change how people from the outside look at our church? Secondly, notice that Paul seamlessly transitioned into prayer right in the middle of a paragraph. He's writing along, telling them how much he misses them, and then of the good news he's heard about them, and then suddenly Paul erupts into a prayer of thanksgiving to God. Is that true of your life? Do everyday events and happenings in your life cause you to seamlessly and effortlessly move into prayer, into thanksgiving to God for what he's done for you? My friends, too often we compartmentalize our prayers. We set aside five minutes in our daily quiet time and then we're done with praying for the day. And we struggled through the day just focused on what we need to do to get done. Paul didn't compartmentalize his prayer life. As he lived and as he breathed, as he moved through the day, as things happened to him, it caused him to pray, to thank God for his sovereign rule and protection in his life. And finally, in the section... Paul writes a strange-sounding phrase in his prayer of thanksgiving here. Verse 9 says, For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you, for all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God? Is Paul saying, in effect, you Thessalonians are important to me because you make me happy? Doesn't that sound somewhat self-centered? I don't think so. Paul has joy in the presence of the Lord. That means he has a shared joy with God. Both he and God are looking on with great pleasure at the growth and success of this new Thessalonian church. It's kind of like two parents watching their five-year-old at their birthday party, seeing the noise, the laughter, the happiness of their child as he opens up presents The parents feel a shared joy between them. And so it is with God and us. There is joy in heaven and on earth when every sinner comes to saving faith. There's joy in the Godhead. There's joy in the angels above. There's joy in the saints below. I want you to think back to our baptism service several weeks ago when six new members of our congregation came forward and testified of their faith and were baptized. Not only were there a ton of people here, the most ever, but there was an excited, palpable joy in this room. We celebrated with God And the host of heaven that night. There was joy in the faces of those being baptized. There was joy in our congregation. There was praise and thanksgiving to God and Jesus Christ for saving us, saving them. That night, we rejoiced in the presence of God. After thanking and praising God for what he has done, Paul moves into asking God to uphold them in three areas. Their faith, their love, and their purity. First of all, he prays for their faith to be strengthened. Verses 10 and 11 says, As we pray most earnestly night and day that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith, Now may the God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus Christ direct our way to you. Again, his time with the Thessalonians was cut short. And then he had to get out of Dodge quickly because the opposition was mounting against him. And as a result, he wants to be back with them. He feels like he hasn't adequately prepared them. So Paul's ministry wasn't just throwing gospel seed here and there and hoping a church would grow from it. It was helping and enabling their continued growth in that young church. We often talk of someone coming to faith if it were as if it were a one time thing. The gospel seed sprouts and is left by itself. But faith is a process. It takes time. The more and more we learn about Christ and the gospel, our faith grows and matures. Paul wanted their newfound faith to grow stronger. But he mentions lacking in their faith. What was lacking here? Well, we have to remember that the Thessalonian church was a newborn church. And these members were baby Christians. They needed to learn how to walk. They needed spiritual milk. Some of their members needed reassurance about those who had died before them, what would happen to them. Others were concerned about their destiny at the second coming of Christ. All of them needed basic instruction in how to live for Christ, how to endure persecution, how to handle temptation. I'm sure they had lots of questions, and Paul desperately wants to give them answers. Secondly, notice another thing about Paul's prayer. It's not a distant, ambiguous prayer. Oh, I I hope they're doing well. It's a personal prayer. It's a passionate prayer. I want to see you again. I want to supply what is lacking in your faith. I desire God to clear a way to you. We see once again Paul's pastor's heart. He has a servant heart mindset, one that looks for opportunities to serve, and we need to have that same mindset among us. It's easy to serve those who are near us, our family, our congregation, our next-door neighbors. But we also need to serve those who are far away from us our relatives and friends who live far away, missionaries overseas, and fellow churches in other states. But you might ask, how do I serve people that are so far away from me? We do what Paul is doing here we pray we pray earnestly and continually for them and for their needs not general prayers but specific focused prayers for what they lack both their spiritual both their physical needs and their spiritual needs last of all paul also prays to direct our way to you now he asks that god would clear path for him to see them again Satan is blocking his way. So he turns to the Lord in prayer. And notice that he relies on God and his power to open the way and move ahead. Not his own efforts. Paul knew that he must follow the sovereign will of God in order to have any success in his missionary missionary work. So let me ask you, as you pray, Are you praying for things to be done and happen according to your plan, your timetable? Or are you conforming to God's plan and timetable? Next, the second point, Paul turns from praying about strengthening their faith to praying for a spirit of love to be evident in this church. Verse 12 And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all, as we do for you. Love is a common word in our culture today. Listen to any music, watch any movie, love will be talked about. But that worldly love is weak and superficial. It's often focused on our own self-interest. Christian love is completely the opposite. It's sacrificial and deep. Love among the brethren is one of the most powerful descriptions we as Christians can make to the world. John 13 verses 34 and 35 says, A new command I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. We covered Christian love in depth as we studied the second half of 1 Corinthians over the last several months. BJ spoke of it as the defining virtue of the Christian life. And we've seen this love on display in Paul. He wants to see them face to face. He's worried about them. He wants to hear news about them. He prays that God would clear a path for him. Was love present in the Thessalonian church? Yes, it was. Look at what Paul says in chapter 4 of this letter. So chapter 4, verses 9 and 10, he writes, Now concerning brotherly love you have no need for anyone to write you. For you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that is indeed what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. So we see that this church did possess love. In fact, lots of it. For one another and for their neighbors. But Paul prays that this love might increase And abound. The love of the brethren in any church, whether it be this Thessalonian church or our church, Redeeming Grace Church, is imperfect because we are imperfect. We can all grow and mature because we have not reached perfection yet. Speaking of perfection, Paul ends his prayer by looking forward to the day when he the Thessalonians, and all who believe will reach perfection. When they will be pure and blameless when Christ comes again. Look at verse 13. So he may establish your hearts, blameless in holiness, before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all the saints. Paul prays to establish the hearts of the believers in this new church. Why? To help them resist temptation. To give them greater resolve to face persecution. To help them not fear death. To help them hold fast to Jesus. Paul wants their hearts to be blameless in holiness, or another word, to be pure. Pure pure like our holy God, spotless like his son Jesus. My my friends, one day we will reflect the glory of Christ. Christ's church will shine like the brightness of the sun. Listen to Paul talk about this in, in in a similar vein in Philippians. That you may be blameless and innocent, Children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you will shine as lights in the world. Philippians 3.15 Paul is looking beyond his present circumstances, all the problems he faced planting and ministering to churches. He is looking towards eternity and fervently desiring that these believers will we'll make it to the celestial city, to the new Jerusalem, to the glory of heaven. And like Paul, we need to pray f- with an eternal perspective for one another because all of us will stand before God at his judgment of all creation one day. We will see God in all of his holiness and righteousness and purity And to get there, we need to lift each other up in prayer to be strong and courageous, to be pure and blameless, to seek holiness in the face of suffering and temptation. And like Paul, we need to pray for those who don't know Christ, that they might see a holy God, believe the gospel and come to saving faith. The unbelieving Israelites were undone when they saw just a bit of God's holiness at the foot of Mount Sinai. We would all cry out in fear and trembling if we were to come to God by ourselves. It is only through Jesus Christ and his sacrifice on the cross that enables us to come before God. He offered up his body for our sake to appease God's wrath. His righteous blood was shed as a sacrifice for our sins, and only through him can we be cleansed and become pure and holy. If you're a non-Christian sitting in the pew today, if you have not repented and trusted in Christ, I ask you to consider Paul's words as words of warning. Your life is not as pure and blameless as you think it might be. Your good actions, your nice manners are still covering up an inner heart that rebels against God. You can't become pure by what you've done. You need to turn to Christ who gave himself as a perfect sacrifice for your rebellion. And only by trusting in him Can you become pure and blameless before God? So I urge you come to Christ. Come to Him. Put your trust in Him. And if you want to talk about this, I'm available, or BJ or any member of this church would be happy to talk to you. Now, to those of you who are believers, who have trusted in Christ, What are we to learn from this prayer of Paul? It's easy to read this passage and think, oh, that's Paul. He's a pastor, he's a missionary, he's a preacher. That's his job. That's what, well, he didn't get paid for it, but that's what he's paid for. (laughs) But this passage doesn't apply to pastors to Brad and BJ. It applies to every one of us. We are all ministers of the gospel, caring, serving, and praying for one another. We all have the responsibility to encourage, exhort, support, and even suffer for one another. So let me ask you, is other-driven prayer a hallmark of your life? Is other-driven prayer a hallmark of this church? Is it something that this church is known about, known for? Too often our lives are self-focused. We turn to God, and maybe after a short time of praising him and thanking him, we begin asking for things that affect us, that make our day easier, that make our circumstances more comfortable. Lord, please make this cold I have go away. Lord, help me write this term paper. Lord, please make me patient with my kids today. Lord, I've got this big presentation at work, Help us get the contract. And then we stop praying and say, in Jesus' name, amen. Our prayers are all about ourselves. We need to turn our prayers to be other-focused rather than simply self-focused. We need to take our eyes away from what we want, what we desire, and consider what others need. We need to pray beyond our own little world. But we can also look at our prayers in a different light. Let me replay that prayer scenario differently. Too often our prayer lives are other-focused only in a circumstantial way. We turn to God, and maybe after a short time of praising him and thanking him, we begin asking for things that affect others only in a physical way. Lord, please make Tom's cold go away. Lord, help Susie write her term paper. Lord, make Judy patient with her kids. Lord, help Joe get that big contract at work. And then we stop And we say in Jesus' name, Amen. These are all good things that we should pray for. They are what people are asking us prayer for. But we need to go deeper than this. We need to pray not only for others' physical needs, but we need to pray for their spiritual lives also. Are you concerned about the state of one another's soul? Do you worry about lack of spiritual growth in another person? When your home group prays, is it only for circumstantial things, Aunt Bertha's hip, and never for her spiritual needs? Now I know some of you are thinking, but I don't know their spiritual needs. They haven't told me. Or this church is too big. How can I know everyone's spiritual needs? I don't think you have to know everyone's exact spiritual needs to pray for them. Just ask yourself the question, where do I need to grow in my spiritual life? Is it prayer? BJ stood up last week and said he struggles with his prayer life. I struggle with my prayer life. I bet all of you struggle with your prayer lives. That's why we're doing this sermon series on prayer. And that's why it isn't a far stretch to simply pray for another person's prayer life. And it's not only prayer. Pick any number of areas where everyone is struggling, reading the scriptures living in purity, patience with your kids or with your parents, worry and anxiety, and the list goes on and on and on. You can pray for one another for the exact same things because I guarantee that they're struggling with them too. Or you can do what's done in men and ladies prayer time at the church. Pick up your Bible, look at a psalm, read through a little bit of of it, look at the theme that the psalmist is writing about, and pray for one another in that that area. Use the Word of God to direct your prayer to pray for the spiritual needs of one another. So in summary, what do I want you to remember about today? Today? Paul had a passionate love for the Thessalonian church and it drove him to pray for their spiritual good. There's a corollary to this. Just as when we love one another, it drives us to pray for one another. So as we pray for one another, we will love them more and more. So we love people We find out about them and their needs and wants. We pray for them, and that prayer draws us closer to them, closer to one another, and we love them more, and that drives us to pray. And on and on and on it goes, increasing. We love people in this church, and as we become more engaged with one another their wants, their needs, their joys, the more we will want to pray for one another. And the more we pray for one another, the more we'll love each other. Are you listening to your brothers and sisters in this congregation, to their needs, their joys, their struggles? Are you writing down their prayer requests during prayer and share time and then actively praying for them during the week? Do you want to love other people more? Then pray for them. Pray for them. Paul wanted to be with the Thessalonian church in their presence. He wanted to teach them and help them to grow in their faith. And when he couldn't, he turned to God and interceded for them, asking God to strengthen and help them. Isn't this a picture of Jesus? Isn't Jesus doing the same thing right now for all of us? Romans 8, 34. Jesus Christ is the one who died, more than that who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. He is continually standing before the Father, interceding for those on behalf of whom he loves. In this prayer, Paul is imitating his Lord and Master, pleading for God for the welfare of this Thessalonian church. And we, like Paul, need to stand before God and intercede for one another. Brothers and sisters, we are in a mighty struggle, in a battle for our souls. Let's help one another to be without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you will shine as lights in the world. Like Paul, let's pray earnestly and forcefully for each other as we all make our way to heaven. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, teach us to pray. Teach us to pray to one another with passion. Help us to pray with genuine concern for their physical and especially their spiritual welfare. Make us attentive and mindful of one another's needs and concerns. And then may your spirit drive us to then pray for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.